Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, ICHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. So March is National Nutrition Month, and today's topic is one which is very close and dear to my own heart and family. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm more passionate about food than almost anything else. I remember a debate I once had in my early 20s with an in-law who was adamant that we eat to live, in contrast to my own position that I live to eat. For me, food is about more than survival. Yes, it is critically about nourishment and nutrition, but for me, it is also about identity. It's about community, family, and all my relationships, including my relationship to the land itself. And it is about pleasure. And with that, I think you have both a glimpse into me, your host, as well as today's guest, whom I'm pretty sure feels the same. So I won't steal her thunder by going on too much more about this. However, you might be asking, hey, this is a podcast about people and healthcare. Why are we talking about nutrition? All of which I can appreciate because few connect a passionate discussion about food with any discussion about healthcare. After all, when you think about food you don't want to eat, many people are going to cite the stereotypical food associated with hospitals. And without intending any spoilers for the conversation we're going to have today, you're going to hear that not only doesn't it have to be that way, it shouldn't be this way. And increasingly, in more and more healthcare facilities, it isn't that way because more and more believe, like me, that food, at its core, is not only critically important to our physical health, but it is also critical to our psychosocial health. So today, I'm joined by Professor Heather Keller, who, among other accomplishments, has led the research and development of the Choice Plus program, which includes an e-learning course in a community of practice developed in partnership with the Research Institute for Aging, or RIA, as it is called. Choice Plus, as you'll hear in this episode, is an acronym for a set of six guiding principles that aims to improve the mealtime experience for residents in long-term care. By bringing leaders, team members, residents, and family to the table, the program focuses on the relationship-centered practices enhancing the dining environment. Professor Heather Keller is the Schlegel Research Chair in Nutrition and Aging at the University of Waterloo. She is an internationally recognized expert in geriatric nutrition assessment and treatment. Her research areas focus on nutrition, risk, and malnutrition identification and treatment across care sectors improving nutrition care processes and implementing screening and other best practices, supporting food intake of diverse groups living in the community, including those living with dementia, and improving hospital and residential food and promoting food intake and the mealtime experience in these settings. Professor Keller has led several national research and knowledge translation projects, including the landmark Nutrition Care in Canadian Hospitals, More to Eat, and Making the Most of Mealtimes and Long-Term Care Studies. Professor Keller has published more than 250 peer-reviewed articles and translate much of this evidence into practice with tools and resources. As a founding member and a past chair and co-chair of the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, she's involved in translating research into practice and advocating for improvements in nutrition care. She is currently the co-chair of the Primary Care Working Group for the CMTF and involved in several national and international expert groups advancing the prevention, detection, and treatment of malnutrition. Hi, Heather, and welcome to the HQ. Thanks, Dale. It's great to be here. So, Heather, since March is National Nutrition Month, perhaps we could start the conversation with you sharing with me your relationship with food and nutrition and why it's so important to you and what has been your journey. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. And, and food has always been a big part of my life. My um, mom was a stay at home mom, um, but she was uh, actually an ex teacher. And mm-hmm. so um, food was a big part of our life, because it was a her passion to be cooking and creating. And uh, for example, she led our 4-H group. So food was always a big part of our lives. And we always had shared meals together at home as well. I can remember we would wait for my dad to get home. He was um, uh often out of out of the uh, area because he was a he was a truck driver and mm-hmm. getting him home on time for supper we would wait because it was so important that we share our meals together um 
then moving into my um, my spouse, his family was a huge family, and they would get together frequently to eat together. And I realized how incredibly important meals were for connecting that family. We'd get together a few times a year and have these big meals and share and and talk, and and uh, it was wonderful. I, I started actually in my food journey though, working in restaurants and seeing that side of of the. Um, of the food food uh, business, if you will, mm-hmm. and always had a passion for foods. It wasn't surprising when I decided to end up doing a nutrition degree because I thought that was just a natural thing to do. I didn't really know what a dietitian was, but I knew food was at the part of a part of that role. Um, and so I worked for many years as a dietitian, and then went back to school and did my PhD, etc. But I think what brought me to seeing mealtimes the way I do now was I had the opportunity um, to do a study with persons living with dementia in the community, and um, my daughter had just been born at the same time. And here I was at home analyzing these qualitative interviews, people talking about the importance of eating with each other when they had dementia in the family. And here I was uh, having a small child, that feeding relationship that you develop with a small child when they are when they're learning to eat and feed themselves. And it, went, mm-hmm. it clicked for me. I thought, this is so much more than just the food that's on the plate that I'd been as a nutrition or a dietitian very much the focus of. It's really about this whole relationship around the food that um, brought me back to those those principles I learned at home, you know, 4-H and all those sorts of things, brought it back that this is really what's something we need to highlight more than we are. Um, and so that led to the eating together study shortly thereafter. I came back from my maternity leave and talked to a few colleagues who are experts in dementia and said this I think I have something here but I don't know how to start investigating it and we launched um, the eating together study and uh, it was a six-year longitudinal study talking to people living with dementia in the community and their care partners as they journeyed through living with dementia and even moving into long-term care retirement homes and we didn't talk about the food what they were eating but how they were eating mm-hmm. um, what food meant to them as their roles their their way of connecting with each other or staying connected as a way of um, adapting and evolving to what was happening in their lives. And we saw, in a way, meals were a microcosm of life, quite frankly. I mean, that may may sound rather silly, I suppose, but if you think about um, sociologists, they study families at meals because it tells us something about the family, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this thing about meals that are much beyond the nutrition, I think, and, and how can we then use meals therapeutically, not just uh, as a place to study, but how can we see meals as a way to actually build connection, build relationship? And when someone has dementia, and they're starting to have challenges around the environment, around themselves and being able to communicate with that environment. How can we use the meal to be able to make them feel like they belong, that they that they are valued, that um, that this is a, a, an important part of their life, right? So that's sort of where I've gone with the research. And that's a little bit of how that journey has happened for me. Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's it's certainly res- resonates with me. Um, and I think it's a, a beautiful journey. Um, and I think, as you describe, I mean, it, it, it's a huge part of our our uh, social fabric, our our probably our, our species as a whole. I mean, I think in terms of even anthropology, right? In terms of us being hunter gatherers, it was a community that sort of foraged and 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 kept each other uh, alive. So, I mean, food is is critical to who we are. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to where this takes us. So, you've you've talked. Um, uh, obviously, a little bit in terms of um, your work and how it's taking you into sort of the geriatric nutrition and, and long-term care. So, um, I suspect many people, you know, if they visited a long-term care facility, may have a fairly reasonable understanding of what meal times might look in a facility or a traditional facility as we might define them. Um, but maybe to make sure that we all have the same starting point, maybe can you? Uh, using, a, I guess, intentionally a bit of a pun here, set the table for us. Um, for um, what does a typical meal time look like um, in a long-term care facility? Um, and then, sort of teasing out, you know, where we're going to go with this. I mean, where do you see the issue with that, and what's missing? Yeah, that's a great question. And so. Um... Just over a decade ago, I took up the Schlegel Research Chair in Nutrition and Aging, and I'm cross appointed at the University of Waterloo and the Schlegel UW Research Institute for Aging. So it gave me this opportunity to really look at long-term care in much more detail than I had before. Um, I'd worked in, in rehab and community and all those other places. So this really was a, an amazing opportunity. And um, 
we realized through doing some early observations and diagram that something important was going on. We needed to create measurement tools to understand what was going on in the dining room. So we spent some time doing that. And um, we created a, a tool that looks at the eating environment, so the dining environment as a whole, but then also as a meal is going on, what's happening in the meal. And, and the aspects we look at are not only the physical features, which are very important, of course, but mm -hmm. also the social um, interactions that happen in that space that might be limited because of space or might be limited for other reasons. Um, and also what we call relationship-centered care, person-centered care, resident-centered care, similar sort of concepts with this idea that there's more than, than, um, than just the food. It's the interaction between people and how they're treated, um, dignified care, that sort of thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. So what we saw when we were doing this very large study called Making the Most of Mealtimes in Four Provinces Across Canada was it varied, hugely varied. Um, but we had, you know, small dining rooms that were more intimate um, to very, very large dining rooms. And so uh, the key features, I think, that we, when people think of a, a traditional long-term care home, they might see it as um, the walls kind of bare, perhaps, um, maybe more institutional-like furniture, uh, maybe even mismatched furniture because it's been a long-standing home, for example. Um, maybe not too functional in terms of its dining space. It might be a place where people eat and then maybe food is brought in on a bulk trolley for serving or um, or perhaps there's a stationary um, table, steam table where food is served out of. That's what people might think of traditionally. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't necessarily conducive to what we want to see happen in dining room. Certainly we saw better homes as well and better dining rooms. We're seeing that now people are, are picking up this message that it really is about home. And many homes are moving towards this idea. Let's make sure they, there's culturally appropriate, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me there, um, culturally appropriate um, pictures on the wall. Excuse me. So I think um, thinking about what we'd like to see would be those culturally appropriate um, pictures on the wall, thinking about dining furniture that is accessible and usable by the older adult that's there, having um, an open servery where they can smell the food, maybe even be involved in preparing the food. So there is this range out there, but certainly the traditional um, old style of home tends to be very institutional feeling. And when we had our folks that were in the eating together study, some of them moving into care, we didn't talk so much about the physical features with them, but what was it like to be moving from home and moving now into a care situation where we're eating with other people? And they talked about it really being a system. And they felt like a little bit like a cog in the wheel. And it wasn't very individualized anymore. They just couldn't go up to the refrigerator at any time and pick out what they wanted. It was mm -hmm. timed. Uh, they had a seat that they had to sit in. They had to sit with certain people. Um, they had food that they might have two choices, but if they were in their own home, they might have had other choices, right? And so yeah. it felt very much like a system. Um, it might, uh, they talked about it being rushed. They didn't feel like they could uh, talk with family in that space. Maybe even family weren't allowed in this space uh, during meal times because it was too congested. Um, back when I first started my career, I would even go into homes and the doors would be locked with a chain with a padlock around the door. And it was only to be used for meals and nothing else, right? Um, so we need to get away from that. We need to see that meals are part of life. Um, it's it's part of the home. It's part of um, the way we live. And we can't just see it as a task to be done. I think that's where we need to move away from. Yeah, I, I, it makes, I think, perfectly good sense. And I think probably for most of us, if we were observing our own, um, you know, our own homes, right? I mean, when we we set that mealtime experience, I mean, it's it's... It's about, you know, more than just even the food itself. It's creating an ambiance. It's creating an, right, a whole a whole experience, maybe music, maybe, you know, other smells that are going on in that space that, you know, draws us all to the, that table. Um, and yes, it, I guess it, it, it sort of begs the question, you know, why do we stop doing that? Um, yeah. Because people are in a, in a care facility. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the dining room, as I say, is often... <clears throat> 
in a neighborhood. So it's located close to bedrooms, but where people congregate is often a common area far away from that. It doesn't make any sense to me that um, we don't use that dining space for life of the village or life of the neighborhood, right? It is in our homes and, and it's an odd thing. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it comes down to, um, you know, people being busy staff wanting it to stay clean, you know, food safety rules, things like that as well, that make it challenging to um, be more flexible and be more open with the space. That's probably part of it, I imagine. Yeah, I I, I can imagine. Yeah, because I think in, in other conversations or conferences I've attended, you know, talking about more people sort of centered care sort of approaches and, you know, some of the challenges the way um, our institutions have been set up, right? They, they are there conveniently designed for the people who work there, not for the people who receive care there. Um, and I think probably some of what you're describing there probably is a, is a further example of that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we're going from living in your own home where you're maybe feeding a small number of people, you know, four or five, to now feeding 100 people at the same time, right? And, and in a one hour period of time. And so that processes that have to happen to make that happen are very systematized, right? And mm -hmm. very rigorous. And that flexibility, that individualization is challenging, which is what's required for person-centered care right? Yeah. Uh, where I want to sit in the dining room, when I want to come to the dining room to eat, maybe I want to have breakfast in my room in bed. You know, I can't do that now because I'm actually people want me to go to the dining room at a certain time. Um, and when people lose their capacity for self mobilization, they're very dependent then on the team members to get them where they're going. So it's often again to the schedule that is available, unfortunately, with the team members, right? Because they're so short staffed in, in long term yeah. care homes. Yeah. So building on some of this, those challenges, I can imagine that the picture changes substantially when you start to introduce dementia, as you've raised a few times now. Um, so perhaps you could further illustrate this for us. I mean, how does living with dementia impact mealtimes and nutrition? Yeah, I mean, people living with dementia experience the world differently, right? Um, they they um, may not understand what's being said to them. They What they say in turn, they're not... Um, being understood by others, um, they can get frustrated, as you can imagine, then as well. The mm -hmm. environment is uh, perhaps um, overwhelming to them. Um, perhaps they have changes in their visual perception of the of these spaces. Uh, many people with dementia have changes in their sensory uh, capacity, right? Um, and so all of these things, the environment doesn't seem the same to the person. It's challenging to the person. So now you can imagine going into a dining room that might have many people in it. Um, maybe you're brought in as a person with dementia and told to sit at this table. You don't know why you're sitting at this table where the table over there looks, you know someone over there, you like to sit with them instead. You're told mm -hmm. to sit at this table because that's your table. And then you sit down and then you're waiting and there isn't any food and it doesn't seem to be happening and then go, well, I guess it's, I've already eaten, I'm going to leave and, and get up and go, right? And so the environment um, isn't necessarily um, adapting to the needs of these individuals who have these challenges with communicating in their environment, right? And so this is, it, it's, it's um, further suppresses the, 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 uh, the um, capacity of people, I think, when we have these large environments, right? And, and when it's more individualized, say, um, I've seen this happen in, in some homes where they actually take the folks that might have significant challenges with dementia into the dining area, and they're at a table, and they actually get them their food first, right? Because they know that if they don't, they might get up and wander away, or um, mm -hmm. start to have some other challenges and expressions in, the, in that environment. And so, we need to figure out how to adapt our environment to support individuals better. I think that's the key thing. We also see as people progress with dementia, having significant eating challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in our Making the Most Mealtime study, we found that those people who were getting total eating assistance from a team member, they ate enough food because there was that one-on-one -on -one assistance, right? Makes but sense. people that were um, starting to lose their ability. Maybe they would stop during the meal. Maybe they lose attention. Um, they, they would actually not eat as well. And so we need to recognize 
when those eating challenges are happening and how to support them. Um, and so there's some things that we can do that, that support folks, but it's that attention again, that time for team members to do the encouragement, uh, to come back and, and sit down at the table with folks and talk with them and perhaps encourage them to, to self-feed. That's really important. We tend not to have that time right now in long-term care to do that, right? It, it's, it's relatively few staff in the dining room. And if people need eating assistance, that assistance is given and, and uh, in a sense of efficiency to try to get the person fed rather than taking the time to encourage them and continue to self-feeding. We know that many people can continue to hold a glass, for example, or wipe their own mouth with their napkin. But we lose the, um, because we're often providing that assistance we just take over right yeah. in being efficient and that's not the thing to do we should try to give them the opportunity as much as possible to participate in the meal um as i say wiping their their mouth um talking about what they want on the plate so for example if you're assisting someone to eat say i've got you know potatoes i've got um, some uh, chicken here and some peas what would you like to start with first giving the person the opportunity to decide what they want to start with even if you don't even they don't communicate verbally but they might with their eyes look at what they want to have that gives you an indication of what they want to eat so dementia as i say it leads to the challenges of the environment often isn't supportive. Um, the, the environment we have, it might be too rushed, too chaotic, too noisy, not thinking about what that individual needs at this moment in time to help them be successful with their meal. And then that further impacts, I guess, the quality of life as you are health and right leads to other, I guess, maybe comorbidities or right in terms of um, nutritional intake and absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and so we we've shown again in the making the most meal time study that when the dining environment was more relationship centered people ate more Mm-hmm. So it's not just the quality of life that we're upholding of the person and, and their resident-centered care, but it also will affect their physical health, we believe, as well. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've sort of have talked a little bit about this and, you know, around, you know, uh, empowering, I guess, uh, the residents in the space and giving them choice, I think, as you just described in terms of what do you want to eat on that plate first. So. Um, I think a, a nice segue into um, the program that you've been working on for the last few years now and the, the Choice Plus program, um, which is a great acronym. Um, it certainly is, uh, I think, uh, pretty much talks about what you're what we've been talking about so far. So, you know, we you frame the 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 challenges. I think we've got a pretty good picture of what's happening um, in some of our long term care facilities. So, um, yeah, so can you break down the Choice Plus program for us and give us a sense of what that is and, and, and let's take it from there. Yeah, so it started out again of that eating together study. We, we realized there's some principles here that are what is a good meal time, right? Whether it be in someone's own home or a retirement home or long-term care or a hospital, right? And that's where we came up with these principles. So choice stands for C is for connecting. This idea that it's an opportunity, a shared opportunity, uh, might be, a, it's a guaranteed opportunity, if you think about in a family, where you can sit down and chat and connect and re-engage, right? So that's mm-hmm. what happens. H is for honoring dignity, this idea that we all have um individual preferences and choice and how can we uphold that rather than saying this is the way it's going to be try to give people that choice that autonomy that they want to have always for offering support again this idea that's based on the individual needs i spoke just before about you know we can often in our trying to be efficient take over the role of all the eating tasks um, and that leads a person to being more um feeling i guess of not able to do anything right that they they don't have any capacity and that's not what we want we want people to feel like they have a role they have capacity and so offering support in a way that it's individualized based on their needs now um we know for example that 
in the morning, people might be very different than they are at night. They're tired mm-hmm. at night. They might need help at night. But in the morning, everything's just fine and dandy. So why do we actually have to have the same level of eating assistance or support at mealtimes the same across those three meals? No, it really should be individualized. Even within a meal, people get tired, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end of the meal, and that help is needed a little bit more. I is for identity, this idea that we're all individuals in that space. And this is a challenge, right? We're here with many people in the dining room, whether it be, you know, 10 people or 100 people in the dining room. Um, we're all individuals in that space. We're not just this body of, of, of a group of people. So mm-hmm. how can we accept and know each individual so we can provide again for those preferences and honor that dignity that we have. The last C is for creating opportunities. This idea that um, food is a big part of our lives, as you said at your intro, right? It's a huge part of your life. It's an opportunity to be creative. It's an opportunity to have a meaningful role. Um, Every family uh, I shouldn't say that, maybe every family, but many families, um, when they're in the kitchen together, they take on different roles, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Someone might wash the dishes, someone might wash the vegetables, someone stirs the pot, whatever it may be. But there's different roles around food in a family. It's a very important part of our life, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these roles, grocery shopping, making the list, all these individual little roles that we can take on. Uh, so it's meaningful. So how can we provide in that setting where food is now provided for people. They're no longer doing the grocery shopping, they're no longer making the list, no longer choosing the menu. How can we bring back those opportunities to be creative, to be involved? Mm-hmm. Um, and for people with living with dementia, um, they sometimes want to take on that role. They see, oh, here's a here's a big dining room and maybe it's a, a person who always had, um, had large gatherings in their home and they just feel it's important for them to clean the plates. That's what they do, right? Mm-hmm. They can't be sitting quietly and waiting for someone else to pick up the plate. They want to do that. So we should let them do that, right? And, and encourage them to do that and support them to do those roles. Um, some people want to say grace. Some people want to um, be, are the, you know, the person that's sort of an entertainer how can we give that opportunity to do that in the meal so they feel like they have a role so meals because they're a big activity in anybody's life is a place for roles and a place we have opportunity for that the final uh, letter is e for enjoyment and so this is what we should be trying to Mm. achieve in a a mealtime it's enjoyment Uh, beyond the food the food is obviously a big part of it too but how can we make the 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 meal enjoyable and that's going to be different for individuals right you can imagine Mm -hmm. um let's say uh i I remember this gentleman i was actually asked how there was this fellow that um didn't want to come to the dining room very much he wasn't very social um and they they realized that because he used to be a truck driver he would always just sit at the counter and people would be chatting around him sort of thing and they realized if they put him at a table looking out the window with people around him he's much more happy to be in the dining room, wasn't going away and wandering off uh, because that was what he was used to, right? So mm-hmm. can we think about how what makes it enjoyable for each individual? What can we flex in this dining space to allow for that opportunity for that individual? Maybe it's sitting down and having tea after the meal and chatting and not being rushed away to the rooms uh, because we want to clean the floor. Um, you can see people, what they want to have. They don't You know, they sit and wait, perhaps, um, and and wait for the meal to be uh, finished and want to sit and enjoy. Understanding that's what they're wanting. Or if you see some people coming to the meal early, they want that interaction, perhaps, with the team members and give a time to chat with that person for a little bit. Or maybe they want to have a role in the dining room. So figuring out, again, what people need um, will help to lead to that enjoyment. So that's a large part of uh, what that is about. And so you can see all these principles are really connected together, Dale. They're not uh, individual. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I think they're values that most of us would hold in our, in our own, um, our, well, our own everyday lives, or I was going to say our non-institutionalized lives, right? I mean, that we hold as part of our, our, um, our, our being. And so I, I think you certainly through the through the acronym and the examples that you've provided certainly demonstrate why you know these have become critically important just because you know we now enter in a place that you know I, I don't want to use the word institution but but a facility where you are being cared for um and about um right that these things still need to find ways i think of, of becoming part of the people's lives and their everyday 
Yeah, the, these homes are people's home. Yeah. So how can we make that the highlight of the day, right? Yeah. Um, certainly entertainment in the afternoon or playing bingo or whatever it may be, those also give enjoyment. But some folks can't participate in those activities anymore, but they can, they still eat, right? Yeah. And so how can we make the meal enjoyable? Even when someone can't communicate verbally and requires eating assistance, how do we make that mealtime special for them? Maybe it's um, knowing that... Um, they want to be their arm gently touched or making eye contact when you're assisting them to eat, showing that they val they're valued and they're meaningful, right? Uh, that's that's what I think we're trying to achieve with Choice Plus. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's huge, um, and and you know and and likely you know bigger for some people than others, right? But nevertheless, there's that I think as you described that in in need for individualization and that to sort of help people to sort of connect to things that certainly are important. So where does the, the PLUS come into the acronym, Heather? That's a great question. And so when we started out with the choice principles, um, we knew we had something important here, but we weren't really sure how to make it happen. And so we did an early study, and, and we call it development evaluation, where you sort of change things as you go. And we realized what was needed was... Um, using behavior change techniques and using change management principles and quality improvement principles to really make it take hold in a home. So that's mm -hmm. where the plus comes from, this idea that's the principles plus the approach to um, helping home team members take in and absorb and really live the principles. Makes sense. I was I was sort of thinking that might be the uh, the connection. I, I certainly draw on the fact that um, in an earlier part of my own career, when I worked in an organization that was implementing Six Sigma, um, and they had made it their own by saying we we do Six Sigma Plus, and the plus being that you needed to talk about the facilitation, the change management principles that were necessary to make these things go, because otherwise, uh, the you know they they would assume that the adoption rates would would uh, would fail in in most cases so maybe i think I, as i've read in terms of preparing for our discussion today um your research you've demonstrated this in three homes if i remember reading correctly and maybe that number is different today um maybe you could describe a little bit what you've learned and how it may be further applied from that research Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we did a study where we had three homes that were willing to try out the Choice Plus program. And at the point when we did this study, we had an external facilitator going in the home. Her name is uh, Dr. Sarah Wu, who's mm -hmm. part of the Choice Plus program now as well. But um, but basically, we we very different homes, different management styles, different um, different types of homes, size, that sort of thing. And the dining rooms similarly were different. And um, so. What I think we learned from that a process is that every dining room can improve. Even a wonderful dining room can still make improvements because team members change, residents change. There's always opportunity for improvement, right? And so I think that's the first takeaway is that everybody can improve and everybody has something they can, they can work on and make it better for the residents and the team members. So that's the first thing we learned. Secondly, it, it doesn't really matter um, some of the... Um, because we had very different homes, we could show it would work in different types of settings, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think the key thing is a willingness for a home to take on and real and work on issues. Seeing the value of mealtimes is probably the most important part of it. If they have that sense that mealtimes can be more than they are now for both residents and team members, but also family members that might be in there or volunteers, um, that's the that's the nugget that needs to start the process, right? The kernel, if you will, that starts the process. Every home um, can use the choice plus principles and the strategies we have in there around behavior change techniques, make them their own, um, and they can achieve benefits. Uh, it may be a different trajectory towards those changes for sure, because they might have to backtrack or or do other things. But we found our steps that we created in this um the plus part of the Choice Plus program worked um, and people saw a change happening. So I think those are the key things we learned. I, I think we also learned that um, Choice Plus helps team members work together. So even outside of a mealtime, the things they learned mm -hmm. from the Choice Plus program about how to 
uh, be empowered to make change, how to make a change continue to happen, how as team members to get behind a change and create that change themselves. That could translate beyond mealtimes, right? It could be about things they could take in other parts of the home and other um, parts of their work role. So that was a good learning for us as well, that we could see people saying, you know, I've learned some really important techniques here that I can think about and move ahead. Yeah, I, I think, I, and that makes total sense, Heather. I mean, I think we we learned this, and I think in our own programs related to quality and, and patient safety and things like that, that talks about the um, the inherit that the investments in these spaces not only obviously lead to better outcomes, but they um, create better um, job satisfaction um, in in staff members, and they feel more commitment to their passion and purpose, and um, and and that has a um, an exponential, I guess, impact in terms of their performance and their roles. Yeah. And I think that the power of Choice Plus, it isn't, you must do these things in your dining room, right? Um, people get told a lot of what they must do. <laughs> and, and Choice Plus says, here's the principles. It's about connecting, honoring dignity, whatever it may be. And people think about, well, what does that mean for our dining room? What are we doing that we could do differently and make people feel like they belong more in the dining room and they can connect better? Right. And so it, it really empowers them to think about their own challenges, which, as you say, gives them satisfaction then. Right. Yeah. Uh, in a sense that they're making improvements, they're making choices and they're working with residents and family to decide what needs to be better. And we can do this together. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so, you know, the last three years have introduced this, uh, this thing called the pandemic, um, uh, which is, you know, discombobulated so many states of normal. Um, what role has that played in, you know, I mean, we talked about traditional mealtimes and, but I mean, from your observation, um, what role has it played in, you know, mealtimes, meal service delivery? Um, I mean, I certainly can guess the answer. Um, whether things got better or worse, um, but and has it further impacted? I guess the you know, the Choice Plus program, as you've seen it, sort of um, implemented in certain places. Yeah, yeah. So we actually had the opportunity to do a survey um, about six months into the pandemic. We had received funding to look at relationship centered care with a survey in long term care, and decided to obviously look at that still, but put on the spin of you know what changed because of COVID, and um, in those early stages of the pandemic, people were eating in their rooms, isolated in their rooms to eat. There are very few touch points with staff because staff didn't want to be bringing things into people, right? Um, people would be given a tray with styrofoam dishes on it. The food would not be necessarily warm anymore uh, because you can imagine plating it and they didn't necessarily have the equipment to transit around um, around a neighborhood and to keep it hot. Um, so th there's a lot of dissatisfaction with food and meals. And uh, as part of that survey, we actually did interviews with care providers living, working in the in long-term care. But we also had the opportunity, I did some interviews with caregivers and residents um, in early 21. And they talked about this was just, just not good in, for their community, not good for um, the residents for sure. And they saw real negative effects. So those were the, the challenges. And so we, because we were trying to keep people safe, we lost some of that, um, the opportunities of meals, right, of that social interaction. There were some good things that happened too, quite frankly. And so in that one survey that I was saying that we did, we actually asked people, um, what was the thing that they felt was missing the most at mealtimes for the residents? And they said it was the social interaction, actually. So it reinforced for people the importance of family caregivers in this space mm -hmm. for the social interactions that we have for residents, how incredibly important they are. It wasn't just um, a task, right? Uh, many homes were able to go back to dining and having uh, people outside of the rooms for eating, but still didn't have recreation activities, still did not have entertainment. So that became for a while the only social opportunity people had outside of their rooms. And so they recognized the incredible importance of mealtime. So that was a benefit, I think. They also, I think, um, realized too that when we talked to, to some of the residents and family that um, 
eating in different spaces, like in the um, maybe the recreation room that had plants and bright windows or facing a garden. That was actually nice because mm-hmm. their dining room wasn't as pleasant a place because it didn't have that same view, um, didn't have more intimate space, right? And so spreading people in these smaller areas or congregating in them in their, you know, in their, their groups so that they didn't uh, spread anything that more intimate space was appreciated. So we learned some things that what people want, right, uh, as well out of this. So I think that's that's how the pandemic sort of rolled out. And I think now people realize the incredible importance, again, of why meals are beyond food. It's really about this social interaction, relationship-centered care. And then two, the huge importance of caregivers that are family members coming into the home to support, um, support mealtimes, not just eating assistance, but also they bring in community, they bring in opportunities to interact where maybe a resident doesn't have a family member that visits very much, but family caregivers of another resident interact with them, right? And so that's really important. And I think we realized that out of the pandemic. Choice Plus, where it went, because we actually, um, just before the pandemic started, we tried to do a one-day training, a leadership training, and we had great success with a great uptake of people coming, and they said they really enjoyed the training that we had. So after our three-home study, we realized there's no way we can just do external facilitation. We'd never reach enough homes, right? We have mm-hmm. to build a model where we can train champions in their own homes to make change. And so we built this, you know, manual and model of training. It was a one-day training and we were going to do follow-up community practice sort of things. Um, we couldn't do the follow-up, but we realized people can learn the principles without an external facilitator right? Mm-hmm. So let's package this in some shape or form. And, and the Schlegel UWRA actually decided to take this project on. And, and because they were moving a lot of long-term care training, IPAC training, things like that, had to go virtual very quickly with the pandemic, they realized, hey, let's try making Choice Plus an e-learning uh, as well. And so that's what they've done over the last couple of years with um, um, a support of an advisor team. And I've been obviously a part of that as well as, as Dr. Sarah Wu. And so we now have this great e-module that we're just starting to roll out and hopefully um, people see as valuable. It teaches them not only the principles, but how to do that change management, that quality improvement piece, those behavior change techniques, which are that plus part in the mm-hmm. choice plus. Great. So, I mean, by the sounds of it, I mean, you've, you very positively have not wasted this crisis um, and used it as an opportunity to make improvements and reinforce, I think, the value of the work that you're doing. So, um, so a big question for you. I mean, some of it you've already covered a little bit, um, but, you know, I mean, as I've alluded to, and we ourselves at CHA Learning um, are heavily committed to people-centered care, as our listeners can see in our own programming. Um, so I'd like to discuss, you know, the relationship between resident-centered care, nutrition, and mealtimes. Um, and you've, you've alluded to as well, right, the, the ethical challenges that the pandemic clearly demonstrated was that choice between safety and quality, um, and the quality of life very specifically. How does that play out, I guess, in the way that menus and food services are designed in long-term care? Um, and I, I mean, and I know this is a huge topic. So, you know, with a lot of different factors and policy implications in terms of what we do and why we don't do certain things, but how would you suggest that we think about this in a different way and, and perhaps to, you know, guide us to a new paradigm, if it were, um, you know, and why is it so important that we do think about this differently? Yeah. Well, food, as I said, is, could be the highlight of the day for people, the mm-hmm. meals, right? And so um, it takes that investment to have good food. In Ontario, we happen to have a, a pretty good raw food budget compared to other provinces in the country with respect to food. But food is expensive, right? And quality food takes quality ingredients. That's the first key thing is that we need to invest in food. Second, we have to invest in the personnel that are making the food. So we can have wonderful raw ingredients, but if we don't give people time to make that lasagna or make that cake, they're going to buy pre-purchased or pre, pre-made products, right? Um, because it's going to be more e- efficient for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a key thing. If we want to actually have foods that our people want to eat that are culturally appropriate, um, that meet their needs and preferences, then we need to make sure there's the staff in the kitchen 
to make the food and they have the skill set needed as well right so that's you know salaries and and all those sorts of things we have to invest in that um and i think that the last thing is even around making menus it is an incredibly hard job to make menus for a group of people Mm-hmm. In hospital, it's hard, but they are, they're only there for a short period of time. But you can imagine people living now in a retirement home or long-term care home long-term, meeting the preferences and needs of a very large group of people who have different uh, cultures, different um, uh, ways they like to eat. It's challenging, right? It's extremely challenging. And then coupled with staffing for making that food and the budget that you have to work with with that food, it's an extremely challenging job. So we need to invest in um, the folks that create menus to have the skills to do this. Um, I actually have a doctoral student working on this idea of culturally sensitive menus in long-term care because it's a huge need. Mm-hmm. Um, and people may not have the skill set they need to do that. Um, another skill set is understanding what's in the food. And so doing being able to do nutrition, nutrition analysis of the food and make sure it's a, um, at the right level of all the nutrients for old adults. Homes don't necessarily have the time to do that right now. So menu planning takes time and skill, and we're not being given um, uh, enough of the prioritization of that to, to, to have it done well at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, and it, and it, it, it seems obvious, I think, when you describe it like that, Heather, because, I mean, you know, even in my own home, we've got three people, we've got three different sets of tastes. And right, I, and while I do most of the cooking, um, and menu planning, right, I'm still engaging with everybody sort of saying, well, what would you like to have for dinner this week or next week, and um, we get our own turns, right, but um, right to create that satisfaction. And then teaching, you know, my son, it's like, well, you know, to get the things you want, you're going to have to eat some things that you may not be your favorites, but, but, you know, but, but it is about negotiation, planning and compromise, right? Um, When you've got a home, right, with a 100 different people in it, with, you know, it gets that much more complicated. Um, So yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fair point. And, and then it takes you know, requires an investment, I guess, to, to prioritize this. It's not yeah. just about full bellies at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we found with the Making the Most Mealtime study that, uh, again, it was in four provinces. And there were certainly differences between provinces, and that would be the funding, you know, and that maybe the, the staffing level in homes. But we found that even in within a province, we had eight different homes. There was variability in the quality of the menu, which meant it came down to the person in the home or whoever was creating that menu and how they were doing it. And some better practices, for example, would be to have residents doing taste testing, residents having meaningful input to the menu. Homes in Ontario have to have a residence council and, and they talk about food, but it has to be meaningful. They have yeah. to feel like the choices they're making are actually uh, borne out and, and um, are acted on, right? And that needs to happen more than it is now. And again, it's that time and flexibility to be able to do that uh, is, I think, part of the challenge and, and the money to be that flexible too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um so speaking about money, um, you know, uh, and attention, I guess, I mean, um, you certainly coming out of the pandemic in terms of another, you know, not wasted sort of crisis. I mean, governments, provinces and territories are poised to be making massive investments in in long term care and building new homes, new capital um, um expenditures, refitting older homes, um, right? So there's, you know, there's more attention on long-term care than there's been for a generation, if not ever. Um, so, so you know, before people start building new homes and changing these homes, you know, based on the work that you've been doing, I mean, what would be your advice in terms of that would inform, I guess, the design perhaps of, uh, of homes and uh, as it revolves around meal times and and food service. Yeah, I think we see that in a physical space um, when it's more intimate, it's a better dining experience. So rather than you think about yourself going into a big mall, how chaotic that the food court is, right? 
Mm-hmm. And now couple that with um, people who have limited mobility, perhaps hearing challenges, perhaps dementia. That environment's just way too big. So a more intimate space, it's appropriate for the number of people that are in there. You don't want too small a space and too many people too. That's not the right the right idea. So smaller dining rooms uh, would be the goal. There's been some work on household models um, and they seem to be a better uh, process, but I must say I haven't seen anything around food intake and that and and um, and understanding the mealtime experience from those from those spaces yet. That's something for me to do in the future, I guess, in terms of research. <laughs> but natural light. Um, you think about you know sitting in a dining room that doesn't have natural light or where you can't see the outside. That would be important. So a dining space should should be able to see the outside. Uh, you should also have good lighting at the table level so that people can see their food uh, mm-hmm. all seasons of the year as we live in Canada, which you know how it gets dark at some points in the year when we're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, having furniture that's um, comfortable, accessible, but also flexible. I sometimes find homes buy furniture and they're sort of stuck then with this type of furniture when a different type of residence comes in. Now they have this furniture that doesn't work anymore. So having tables that might go up and down in terms of their adjustment, allow wheelchairs to get under. Um, is really important. I mean, it'd be lovely if we could transfer people out of wheelchairs into dining chairs, but that that just doesn't happen. There's enough staff to do that, quite frankly, to have mm-hmm. people sitting in dining chairs. That'd be preferred, of course, but that doesn't always happen. And then finally thinking about rather than having a pass-through window where food comes out of the wall, you know, to, to a server, having a counter that looks like a normal kitchen counter um, where people can feel like they can come up and get a beverage or um, a family members can go behind and wash their hands or whatever it may be. That's what we would hope for. This is probably going to make some food safety people crazy when I say that, but <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, that's what we'd love to see is that open sort of servery. So it feels like a kitchen, right? It feels like, um, Food isn't just coming out of this cubby hole in the wall or out of a bulk steam cart that's been rolled into the middle of the dining room sort of thing, which seems rather artificial. So those would be the things I'd love to see happening in these physical dining spaces, thinking about, you know, maybe 20 people at most in the dining area, um, an open style servery where people can go up and get uh, a glass of juice if they want it. They can open the fridge themselves. Um, Again, makes the food safety people probably a bit crazy, but if it's their home, we should have that sort of opportunity, I think. Yeah, well, yes, I, I agree. I think it, it, and it makes sense even more so, I think as earlier part of our conversation around the dementia side of things. And if that is going to continue to be, um, you know, more and more, you know, seniors and elderly people living with dementia and in, you know, need of homes that can um, be attuned to their, their needs, um, it makes sense that creating spaces that are more familiar and more comfortable um, probably is going to be, you know, critical to their um, to their well-being. So, as you've, I think, have, you've covered a little bit already in terms of the plus um, and the the need for sort of massive massive change in terms of our change management approach to culture and staff development. Um, can you describe a little bit more in terms of like the things that are included in the programs that you, and the, the manuals that you're teaching um, in terms of what needs to happen to allow for that change management to be successful and adopted? Yeah, great question. So uh, again, it comes back to having the team feel empowered um, to make change. And here I'm using team broadly. So residents, mm-hmm. team members, family members that might be involved in the space. And so our e-learning talks about training a champion to engage that broader team about what is it that they'd like to see changed in the dining room first off considering these principles right so educating people on what the principles are and this is what we'd want to see in mealtimes and the principles resonate with everybody Dale right they, 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 they resonate with you immediately as well as everybody else listening today they, they make mm-hmm. sense right so people, yeah this is what we should be doing and when you get give people the time and space to say how can we make connecting better or how, how are we actually are we honoring people's dignity at mealtimes the way that we should and giving them the opportunity to talk about that and what they want to see happen um, that takes a, a period of time obviously understanding what is the most important things to start working on changing. And many of them are um, 
low hanging fruit, not high cost. It's just a different way of doing things, right? Um, and so that's that's the first key thing we try to get people is realize this takes time and think about the change and what it is that needs to be changed. And then once they have that, learning some basic things about how change happens. So behavior change techniques. We like to use the behavior change wheel in this um, in this program and the Calm B framework, which is capability, opportunity, motivation, changes behavior. So I often think we think, oh, I tell someone to do something, it will happen right? And that's not how behavior change happens, as we all know. You have to think through, well, why don't they do it now this way? Uh, so what is the, is, how do we change the opportunity to make it easy to do the right thing? How do we motivate people? So often just teaching them the principles of going, we want to do better. That's the motivation, perhaps. But do they have the capability? Capability could be skills, could be time, could be knowledge uh, to do these things that we want them to do. And when you realize, tease out, you know, why isn't it happening? Is it capacity? Is it opportunity? Is it motivation? Then you realize what you target. It's, is it education to motivate people? Is it using story um, of a success of where when it was done, this actually really benefited a resident and a team member or whomever, right? So that's a key piece of it. And then we also teach them using the, the basic cycle of QI change, right? Plan, do, um, check, and, and, and act, right? This, this cycle of you can plan to do it, put it into place, check to see if it worked, right? And then if it didn't work, figure out why it didn't work and tweak it again. And these mm -hmm. cycles of change and realize change takes time. So I think those key learnings for people really help them to realize, hey, if we're going to make a change, one, we have to really invest that time and effort into it. So we're going to want to make sure it's a change we really want to do too, right? Something like noise, for example. But many of the things they realize they can they can do quite readily. We also have these two checklists that are part of the program and they're they're on the website for anybody to use, but one is the mealtime practices checklist. And it focuses in on the six, the, the principles of choice. So connecting and it actually asks team members to ask themselves questions about how they do their work role when they are in, in the dining room, maybe interacting with someone who requires eating assistance. Do they do these things? It sort of tweaks them to, yeah, I'm not doing that, or I need to do that better, right? And so that's sort of, again, awareness of how to enact the choice principles is there with that practice uh, checklist. And then the other um, checklist is around the dining environment. So some of the things we talked about today that make it a more physically appealing, easy, functional dining space that you can think about, like lighting, for example. Um, and those might take more of an investment, but they help people to realize, hey, we really need to think about rearranging the way we do our tables here. The flow isn't really good, or it works for team members, but doesn't work for residents. Um, or we've got the dish cart here, which is really noisy, and maybe we need to do something differently, right? So those checklists help people think through what their challenges are. Um, the last component of the Choice Plus program is we actually have a community practice, which is just starting actually next month. And so people are welcome to come and chat with myself and Dr. Sarah Wu about what they're trying to change. And we'll mm -hmm. talk about these behavior change techniques as well and, and walk through some case examples for folks. And so we're kicking that off. We're not sure how it will go. Hopefully it'll go well. Um, but we're, we recognize that people need that support after that e-learning as well. Great. Thank you. Um, well, maybe at the end of this, or um, you can provide us with some links to some of these different uh, resources and things like that, Heather, and we can include them in their show notes for people um, who want to learn more about these. Um, I guess one of the other things I guess I reflect on, uh, you know, based on what you've described, and you know, even the PSA sort of cycle, I mean, well, our conversation today has centered around you know, meal times and food service um, delivery, you know, which is which occupies, you know, a significant part of all of our lives. Um, uh, but all of us have that in our lives, right? So I think it's highly relatable. Um, and, you know, can, gives us uh, capacity for compassion and empathy, perhaps, um, about why these things are important. Um, but there's nothing to say that the choice plus sort of framework that you've provided here can't be applied to other parts of the care in whether it's in in, in a long-term care home or any other part of our healthcare system it can be applied to rec recreation or bathing or any other aspects that are in part of these yeah. residents lives 
and actually, if you um, uh, the domains of well-being uh, for for persons living with dementia, um, I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Al Power, who is um, also part of the Schlegel UWRA, and um, he he's an expert in this area. But those seven domains of well-being map very nicely onto choice. Mm-hmm. So again, that idea that you're you're right that these 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 concepts um, are things we should think about beyond meals as well, for sure. And and thinking about when you said anywhere, I agreed. Um, one of my hopes is that we can start to move this out to caregiver in the community training. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of uh, caregivers, uh, when a person they live with has dementia, it can be really challenging and mm-hmm. frustrating and um recognizing hey let's sit back and think about what's really meaningful about this meal it isn't that it's absolutely wonderfully nutritious and yes you hear a dietitian saying that it's about these other things right and maybe it's just about enjoying the food and so what if someone picks up their food with their fingers who cares it's really about the enjoyment it's about the person feeling dignified etc yeah yeah, and it's, you know, coming full circle, as you described, you know, your relationship with your child and, right, and we're talking about, you know, people, you know, at the, in the, in the final stages of their lives, right, this is a huge um, cycle that unites us all, um, and it, it is something I think that we need to certainly um, honour, uh, to use your language, um, throughout. So, um any final words to you, Heather? Sort of, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope others can take from this um, the wisdom that you've shared in terms of how they apply it. But yes, any other final words as we close well, off? I, I'm just so glad that we've had this conversation as well because I think we often get tied up in what we're eating, right? Mm-hmm. But remembering how we eat. And again, the pandemic, I think people realized the importance of these shared activities in our lives, how incredibly important they are for us not only our our psychosocial, but also our physical, right? Because we know people tend to eat better when they're eating with others. Um, So I'm I'm so glad we're putting some spotlight on that today. So thank you very much, Dale. Thank you, Heather. So um, bon appétit. Thank you again for sharing all of your your stories, your research, your passion. Um, And yeah, I look forward to having other conversations with you in the future. Sounds great. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.